We are returning this morning to our study of the growth of the early church in the book of Acts. You have your Bible with you. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. If you're using the Bible under the seat in front of you, you'll find that on page 1159. While you're turning there, let me remind you what we've covered since it's been some interrupted weeks over the last several weeks as we've been working our way through chapter 2. The beginning of chapter 2, we had the event of Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit, uh, the actual event and the immediate aftermath there that, that happened. Uh, And then the rest of chapter 2, the bulk of the middle of chapter 2, is Peter's sermon explaining what's going on and what isn't going on to all of those who were around and observed the the Christians receiving the Spirit, the effects of the giving of the Spirit. Well, that was the immediate effects. This morning, we're going to start looking at some of the more not, well, I was going to say short-term, but it's not really short-term. It's it's the long-term effects. What were the effects of the Spirit in the life of the Christians, in the body of believers, over the next weeks, months, years? What did it look like to follow Christ in that, time, in that day? Uh, of course, to understand and faithfully apply God's Word, we need the Holy Spirit with us today and every day. So if you're able, please stand with me while I pray. Remain standing as I read from Acts chapter 2. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your Word. We pray that you would uh, work your word into our hearts that we might be more like you. We pray that you would restrain our sin, give us eyes to see your truth and your faithfulness and your love and your grace to us, and give us hearts that respond in obedience, in delight that we might be pleasing servants of yours. None of that will happen if your Spirit isn't present among us. So please, Lord Jesus, give us your Spirit today that we might glorify you in the reading and the preaching of your Word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Acts chapter 2, starting in verse uh, 41, actually. We'll, We'll focus on 42, but we'll start on 41. This is God's Word. So those who received His Word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, and breaking Bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. When I was in high school, I was in a production of The Man of La Mancha. If you're not familiar with that play, it's kind of a take on the story of Don Quixote, uh, the man who acted like he was a knight like 400 years after knights stopped being a thing. Uh, Most people remember uh, Don Quixote as the guy who tried to joust with a windmill because he, in his head, it was a dragon or something. He He had some mental health issues, we might say. Uh, But there is a sense in which his particular breed of craziness, if I can call it that, that, was beautiful. There was a sense in which his, his breed, his, his issues were actually beautiful. In the course of his travels, he met a woman of ill repute, shall we say, uh, named Aldonza. 
But Don Quixote saw her and treated her as a lady, not in the sense of adult female, but as in lord and lady. He treated her like a noblewoman. He called her Dulcinea from the Spanish word for sweet. And this woman was the absolute bottom rung of the cultural ladder, had no respect in that culture. Yet Don Quixote saw, her as, saw in her what she could be, saw the best version of her and gave her respect based on that rather than what she actually was, a prostitute. There is a powerful force in us that wants to measure up to people's expectations and vision of us. Good or bad, consciously or not, most people will work to live up to the expectations of those around us. We don't want to disappoint people. We see ourselves reflected in others' eyes. But a competing vision can break the narrative. Through her, though her cynicism, and everyone she knows, fights against it, by the end of the play, Aldonza her understanding of herself had changed. She caught her understanding of herself has changed, and she has caught Don Quixote's vision of her as someone worthy of respect and honor, and she begins to act on that vision. Seeing the best version of ourselves in someone else's eyes is an amazingly powerful thing. People often ask why the church today can't be like the church in the New Testament. And I'll be honest, when I hear people say that, I wonder if they've ever actually read the New Testament, and particularly the letters to the Corinthians. The New Testament church is often ugly. Uh, it's fraught with sin, no less than the church today is. Never mind the Corinthians or the rest of the letters in the New Testament, even in the book of Acts. We see that the church is afflicted by sharp disagreement, by sin, by brokenness. There has never been a church that did not struggle with sin because there's never been a church that didn't have people in it. And all people are sinners. As humans, we will continue to wrestle with sin and disagreement until Christ either calls us home or comes back here himself, one way or the other. And yet... In the midst of that, we also pursue righteousness in the midst of our wrestling. And seeing a vision of the best that the church could be with all the ugliness stripped away gives us an ideal to work toward. A picture of the church as she could be, as she will be one day. We must work to hold that picture, this picture that we see at the end of Acts chapter 2, this picture in our mind's eye, even while we know that the church will not measure up to that in this life. Our passage this morning, in one sense, is that ideal. It is like Don Quixote's vision of Aldonza. It is a picture. It is a picture of the best possible vision of the church without sin, without brokenness this is all the best parts of the church without any of the stumbling blocks that every church runs into one way or another this passage this section of acts 2 with another in chapter 4 uh, is what i think people are referring to when they say why can't the church be like the new testament this is what they're thinking of this vision it is a powerful attractive vision 
of the church. It's not a complete picture of the church. It's only the best parts that we experience in this life. But it is more attractive for the lack. Now, as we look this morning, I think we're going to see five characteristics that every church and every individual in a church should be striving for. Five characteristics. The first four are things that this, this early church in Acts, four things they devoted themselves to. And the final is the implied result of the first four. So four things that they devoted themselves to. And then the final is the, the thing that they saw as a result of that devotion. They are The four, five things are, first, they are the learning church, a loving church, a worshiping church, a praying church, and a growing church. Learning church, loving church, worshiping church, praying church, and a growing church. First, they are a learning church. In verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles were regularly, probably daily in that time period, in that historical moment, they were probably daily teaching both in the temple and in people's homes. And the believers paid close attention and sought to live out what they heard. They devoted themselves. The question, of course, is what was it the apostles were teaching? What was it to which they devoted themselves? And the short version is, we know. It's written down right here. It's recorded for us. What we now call the New Testament was written by the apostles. Peter and John and James and Jude, all the letters of Paul in the apostles' teaching, both as recorded in Acts and in their letters, they base all that they say on Scripture. That is what we would call the Old Testament. To say that we want to devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles is to say that we want to devote ourselves to the Scriptures, Old and New Testament. That we will read it regularly, that we will study it diligently, that we will, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, live lives consistent with what it teaches. That's the hard part, right? Now, on the one hand, our culture, the United States, we value education pretty highly. That is an important thing. And we're Presbyterian, which means that culturally we as Presbyterians value it especially highly. We like education. It's our, our, that's our thing. We really value learning. So while this first characteristic is, in fact, one that we need to pursue, it is the one that we have the greatest natural inclination toward. This is the one we like. Devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, that is, to the Bible. Great, cool, let's go. I'm ready. Awesome. But then it starts to get hard. James says that Christians should not be hearers of the word only, and we would include readers of the word in that category, but also doers of the word. New learning that does not result in new living, that does not result in new actions, in new habits, means that you haven't really understood what you've learned. In a sense, you haven't really learned it at all because it hasn't sunk in to change your heart and to change your life. We might have memorized some principles. We might be good at drawing charts on the whiteboard to show how things fit together. But until it changes your life, until our lives are characterized by these truths, then there's a sense in which we haven't truly learned them at all. Twenty-some-odd years ago, I went on a 
summer trip, a couple month trip to Ukraine uh, when I was in college. As we were preparing to, to set off at the start of the trip, uh, we went through some training that included some of the differences between these two cultures. And one of the things that they told us, kind of explaining what was going on there in Ukraine, they said, in the United States, Christians may know 10 things and they're doing two of them. Or maybe only one of them. Christians in Ukraine only know two things, but they're doing both of them. Here in this country, we have a vast store of institutional knowledge of spiritual things. And don't hear what I'm not saying. That is an incredible blessing. But we struggle to see our lives changed because of that storehouse. As Christians, though we know many things, often our lives don't look really any different at all from the non-Christians around us. As we seek to emulate the ideal church here in Acts 2, the learning church, we need to continue to study. We need to continue to learn things absolutely unquestioningly. But we cannot stop with mere intellectual growth. We must recognize that truths we study about Christ must necessarily make us strangers and aliens in this world. Our learning must include a recognition that we are not one end of a pole at the other end is the culture of the day. We are instead on a different continuum entirely. There's twin poles of the culture, and whichever one you think Christianity is most associated with, whether that's the conservatism or the liberalism or you know, communism or capitalism, or you, know, you pick your spectrum that you want to look at, whichever one you see Christianity more associated with, you need to understand that it's not on that spectrum at all. There are things with which Christianity will agree at both ends of the spectrum. There are things at both ends of whatever spectrum it is that Christianity, genuine biblical Christianity, must necessarily challenge. We're not on the continuum at all. Our lives are focused entirely separately. We are strangers and aliens in this world. Our goal is neither to accept the culture nor to oppose the culture but to pursue Christ in His Word and wherever that takes us. We have to apply the things that we learn consistently and faithfully and live them out in our lives because the things that we know but don't do, we can't really say that we know after all. They were a learning church. They were also a loving church. Now, this certainly includes our being together, enjoying each other's company. It cannot be less than that. But we must employ a scriptural definition of love. Self-sacrificial care for another in practical, tangible ways. If the first characteristic, the learning church, is fairly comfortable for us, relatively speaking, this one may well be the least comfortable. In verse 42, we are told that they devoted themselves to the fellowship, and this is clearly more than simply being together, though it, that's absolutely a necess necessary part of that. Uh, with this idea, we have to deal with verses 44 and 45. Look at those now. Luke writes, All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Unless you think I'm making connections, the text doesn't make. The Greek word translated fellowship is koinonia, and I only mention that because I'm sure that's a word that some of you heard before. 
we typically think of it as referring to the what we call fellowship in English, the, the unity of spirit, the, the unanimity of heart that you find when people are good friends and are, are working together. And that's not wrong, but it's not complete. In the New Testament, in half, half of the instances where we find that word koinonia, half of them, it refers explicitly to the giving of money or of other tangible goods, an offering given or sent to those who are in need. In half of the instances. This is hard for us. Our culture puts great value on privacy, on self-reliance, on private ownership, not to put too fine a point on it. Our culture values selfishness and greed. Our culture doesn't struggle with selfishness or greed. They are respectable sins in some ways that we just harness to get ahead in the world. They are expected. They are winked at. Please don't hear what I'm not saying. It is not wrong to own things. It is not wrong to have money. God is the one who gives wealth. God is the one who calls us to steward what He has given us faithfully. Whether that's a whole lot or not, a, not much at all or everything in the middle. And Before I go anything, any, any further here, let me just be clear. I'm not calling anybody out here. I don't know what anybody gives. I have no idea. So if you, if you think this is aimed at you, it's not me that's aiming it. So just I have no idea. I don't want to know what anybody gives. I'm not speaking to anyone in particular. As a culture, we give what is comfortable to give, what we can give away and not notice the lack. Sometimes we give away so that we can get stuff, whether that's a tax break or something else. But God calls us in His Word not merely to give what is easy or comfortable or to give so as to get something in return, but to give that which is painful. To give more than we can really afford or that we think we can afford. When Jesus praises someone in the Gospels, in the Gospel accounts, when Jesus praises someone for giving, it is not the person who gave a lot because he had a lot to give and didn't notice that anything was gone. Jesus praised the woman who quite literally gave her last two pennies. Because she gave everything that she had. Now, that's, that kind of sacrificial trust in God's provision is what Jesus praises. And it's incredibly hard. And don't, again, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not asking you to sell everything you own and give all the money to the church. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to reframe our thinking about what giving is and what our standard of giving should be. We are not called merely to give to the church to establish programs. Why? Because all too often... Though we use those programs to, as a way of keeping ourselves separate from hard people, distancing ourselves from those who actually need our help. We give to the church, the deacons take care of those hard people that we don't really want to talk to, and so you know, I can feel better about myself because I gave money to the deacons, and then the deacons do the work. Cool. But our calling, particularly in this passage, our calling is to give sacrificially, to give personally, to be personally involved in the lives of the people to whom we're giving. To give without condescension, to recognize that the only reason I have any money to give or stuff to give or time to give, and believe me, we're not just talking about financial resources, but everything God has given us. The only reason we have anything at all to give is because God gave it to us first. Tim Keller once noted 
There is an inequitable distribution of both goods and opportunities in this world. Therefore, if you have been assigned the goods of the world by God and you don't share them with others, it isn't just stinginess, it is injustice. Why? Because God gave you those things, whether it's tangible financial things or talents or whatever, God gave you those things in trust for others. He gave them to you so that you would be his hands and feet to give them to another. Now, caveats, right? It should be said that the book of Acts does not abolish the right to own things, nor does it teach that every Christian is required to sell everything they have and give to the poor. We will see this most clearly in chapter 5 of the story of Ananias and Sapphira. What Acts does teach is a very different attitude toward the world around us than what is common today or really has ever been common. It's great. It's fine to own a car, to own a house, to own other things. My personal addiction is books. Don't talk to me about my books. It's fine to own things. But rather than asking, how much do I have to give to meet the minimum standard? Our question should be, our attitude should be, what can I possibly give away? How can I bless somebody else with this stuff that God has put in my care? Again, to be blunt, it is, not, it is caring more about people made in God's image than you care about the stuff or the money or the talents or the time or the whatever it is. Again, not wrong to have money, not wrong to have stuff. Don't hear what I'm not saying. The question is, what do you value most? Where do you place your heart with relation to those things? As James asks, when you see a brother hungry and cold, how do you respond? Do you say, go, be warm and well-fed, but I ain't going to do nothing for you? Or do you actually meet that tangible need? We are to be a loving church. Third, we are to be a worshiping church. They devoted themselves, verse 42, uh, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, I was an English major. You know I love grammar and words. Bear with me a second while I bore you for just a moment. It's, I think it's important. Um, we could read this as simply they ate together regularly. They had lunch together every day after worship in the temple. That's possible. But because it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread rather than just to breaking bread, Luke seems to be referring to something specific. Not just generally eating together, but rather most likely to the Lord's Supper specifically. They devoted themselves to worshiping together, to receiving the sacraments together. And interestingly, they didn't just worship together in their homes. They did do that, but also, verse 46, they attended the temple together. This was the place of worship for the entire nation, really the center of Jewish Old Testament world in worship in the entire world was the temple. And the Christians, even after receiving the Holy Spirit, continued to go to the temple to worship together. Now, probably they didn't participate in the sacrificial system because Jesus' one sacrifice had finished that, had completed it. Probably they just participated in the regular prayer services that went on every day in the temple. But it's important that they still gathered together for worship. They ate the Lord's Supper together regularly, maybe even daily. They made worship the central focus of their lives. 
orienting everything else in their lives around that. If we're working to do the first two characteristics well, learning and loving, then this one comes much easier. If we're learning and loving together well, then it is a joy and and a delight to worship together with those that we love, with those who are also learning with us. They are to be a worshiping church. Likewise, just as worship gets easier, so also does prayer become easier, and we are to be a praying church. Christians in this, this early, you know, not even the first century, the first month, the Christians devoted themselves to the prayers. And again, this is not merely private prayers alone in their prayer closet. Look, that's valuable. You should be doing that. But they gathered together to pray. There's a tradition of prayer services. We talked about it a second ago. Prayer services held in the temple. And it seems that the church continued to participate in that, both in the temple, in those official prayer services, but also out of the temple, gathering for prayer specifically together as Christians. They prayed together. Now, I'll put this after worshiping together because it's in some ways actually a good bit more difficult. When we worship together, we have to bear at least a little bit of our inner selves if we're actually worshiping the Lord well and not just you know putting on a show so that everybody thinks that you're holy. But when we pray together, if we're being at all real in our prayers, the vulnerability level is significantly higher. It is hard to pray together. It is hard to be vulnerable enough to bear your heart and soul to God while you're with other people. And yet, because it requires such vulnerability, it also fosters close, true, real friendships, fosters fellowship and communion in ways that cannot be achieved easily in any other way. It's a cliche for a reason that the family that prays together stays together. It is hard work, but it's enormously rewarding. Let me take a minute just to to help you picture that. What does it look like to be a praying church? I think there are a a few possibilities that we we should consider here. Zeroth, because it comes before first. Zeroth, you should be praying throughout the day yourself. As regularly as breathing, whether in joy or in stress or in happiness or sadness or anything in between, lift your thoughts to the Lord who hears you and acts through your prayers. This doesn't have to be fancy. In fact, it's better if it isn't. It should be your actual voice, not some fancy using lots of big words prayer type language. Just talk to him. He knows your heart. He knows who you are. He wants to hear your voice. Assuming that, first, schedule times of dedicated prayer. One option for that is a, and again, so we've got zeroth, just be praying throughout the day as simply and easily as breathing throughout the day. Second, first, zeroth first, whatever, um, schedule times of dedicated prayer. Times when you set aside that you are going to do nothing else other than pray. And one option for that is uh, what's called a prayer walk, which is, I mean, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just walking around, and while you walk, pray for the things, the the neighborhood that you're in, for the people that you think of, those that the Lord brings to mind. Be intentional. Maybe bring a little, you know, a notebook with names in it, and pray for the list down the, the list as you walk. 
As you're walking, your brain, your, your body is functioning and your blood is flowing and it helps you stay focused because you're not just sitting quietly with your eyes closed, which can be hard to keep our minds focused in one place. Um, if that sounds appealing, but, but maybe a little nebulous, if you'd like to try that sometime, uh, I'd be happy. To, I've got a resource that gives, it's a one-page thing that gives some, subs, subs, some suggested scriptures, easy for me to say, uh, for you to, to help guide your prayers as you do that. If you're interested, just come talk to me. Um, so prayer like breathing, dedicated times of prayer. Another possibility is a small group. Two or three people gathered together regularly, weekly, maybe more often, gather together regularly specifically to pray for this congregation, for Brigham City, for the work of the Lord to be accomplished mightily in this place, for the particular needs of these people, those that the Lord brings to mind. Use the readings in the, and in the bulletin. Use the prayer requests that we've listed in the bulletin. Take notes as we go through the, the, the open request time and pray for those things. Use that. Let that be a springboard to prompt your time of prayer together. Finally, we need to get into the habit of coming together as a congregation for dedicated times of prayer. At every one of these levels, both the level of I'm doing all of the normal things that I do in my life and I'm praying while I do all of those things, just like breathing, to dedicated individual times, to times when you get together with one or two other people, to times when the whole congregation comes together and devotes time together to pray to the Lord. Prayer should be threaded through our lives in the same way that breath is threaded through our bodies. We are to be a learning church, a loving church, a worshiping church, and a praying church. As a result of those things, we expect that the Lord will make us a growing church. If all four of those first characteristics are true, or at least becoming true in us, then we will find ourselves more and more excited to be here, to be gathering together. We will be more and more excited to invite other people to come be a part of this. And people will want to be a part, not for the sake of the activities, but for the sake of the vibrant spiritual life that exists among us. This vision of the best possible version of the church is amazingly attractive. Now, it won't happen quickly. It won't happen easily. This, every step of this, all the pieces of this are hard work. Emotion, emotionally, spiritually, they are heavy work as we pursue them faithfully. There are very few, if any, programs that can just kind of be slotted in and boom, bam, snap your fingers, everything's great, everything's going to be perfect now. The reality is God most often grows things slowly because he focuses on the roots to grow, dig deep and grow strong before you get this explosion. What kind of plant grows fastest? A weed. Also, usually that's the kind that's easiest to get rid of. We want the plant that grows deep like a tree that maybe takes years to grow but flourishes and gives shade for many years. What is most valuable is that which takes the longest time and the most work to create. 
when we, all of us together, when we begin to invest that time and effort into our relationships, both with God and with each other, when we put the effort into this body of believers called the church, we will see the life of the church begin to be transformed to something that will be utterly unrecognizable to the, by the non-Christian world around us and yet utterly, utterly attractive. As that happens, as we grow in spiritual maturity, we will become more and more excited to tell everybody what Jesus is doing here, to invite them to come be part of it. We are called to tell people about Jesus, about their need for Him and His, His provision for that need. And God will be faithful to work in that boldness. And we will see, the God, see God grow the church in His time, in His providence, and certainly not as quickly as we would like for it to happen. But He will do it because He is faithful to what He has said He will do. Now there is no church in the world that gets all five of these aspects right. Let's be honest, there's no church in the world that gets any of these five aspects completely right. Because the church is full of people who sin. Individuals who consistently fail to be faithful. And no church is going to look like that ideal, well-discipled picture that Luke paints for us here. But just as in my individual walk with Christ, I pursue a holiness that I will not attain in this life. I work to grow in justification that I will not see completed in this body until He returns. Even though we won't completely attain it this side of glory, in the same way we as a congregation, as a body, should be pursuing righteousness and the beauty of that perfect ideal church in this life, even though we know that it won't be attained until we arrive in glory. Just because we won't get all the way there doesn't mean we can't get closer. We should, each of us, be looking for ways to grow personally and ways to grow the church in each of these five characteristics because this is our identity in Christ. We work to be who we are in Him. Did you hear it? We work to be who we are. We work to be what He has already made us to be. We work to be who we are and we trust that God will provide all that we need and will bless us with growth as He sees fit. Because He is at work. This is His church and He will be faithful to what He has said He would do. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we